1: So subscribe today at wwwajccom ATL.
2: This is Access Atlanta. Every week we share some of the best places to eat, play and live out loud in the ATL. And of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Hidden all over the South are structures that once powered a renaissance in Black America. Some are modest two-room clapboard structures. Others are three-story brick buildings. All were built through a unique partnership between white mail order magnate Julius Rosenwald and Black educator and leader Booker T. Washington. Atlanta photographer Andrew Feiler discovered the story of these structures while working on another project and was shocked that he hadn't heard the name Rosenwald before. In 2014, Filer set out to find and photograph the Rosenwald schools that still stand and to bring the Rosenwald story into the light. The AJC's Bo Emerson recently spoke with Filer about his work and he's here to bring us that conversation. Welcome, Bo. Thank you, Shane. So this is a pretty fascinating story and uh, it's, it's kind of sad that not many people know about it. It's kind of weird,
0: too, when you uh, see how huge that project was.
2: Yeah, and they're all over the place and there're quite a few still standing here in Georgia too. Well, it
0: was it's always shocking to uh to stumble on one and usually they have a different name. Uh they uh very very rarely were called Rosenwald and that was really for two reasons, but the most important one was that Rosenwald who y'all may remember was um uh, had earned his fortune by uh, running and being part owner of Sears Roebuck um, he did not really he wasn't interested in putting his name on these schools and and uh, he uh, always worked with local uh, communities in, in all of the southern states and some of the sort of the uh, border states as well, and he let them uh, figure out where they wanted the schools and they the uh, and they were the ones that named the schools. so there's no like like Carnegie's name is all over the place and Rockefeller's
2: name is all all over the place. Rosenwald's name kind of disappeared. Yeah, and and a lot of those structures that well some of them are in disrepair, but some of them have been just turned into other things too,
0: which is which is pretty cool. Um, and usually that as is a result of just dedicated amateurs and individuals in those in those communities that wanted. To make sure
2: that this little clue to history didn't disappear, right, and that's sort of what Andrew Feiler has done too with with his photographs, which you can also see right at the uh, the National uh, Center for Civil and Human Rights, right? Correct. That
0: was the um, uh, the way that I got to see uh, some of the some of the reprints, and they're they're uh, in a huge scale, so they're really wonderful to look at. There, They exhibit. Uh, at the at the Civil Rights Center will continue through, I believe, uh, the fall here, and uh, the I think there are something like twenty four of those images uh, 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 that are on display there. Um, it's also a great way to get a look at what what's inside the book, which is uh, which came out in April, a better life for our children, and uh, I think there are more more like a hundred and some odd. Uh, images in that book. It's a great book. It uh, not only um, uh, documents what's happened with these, uh, what's happened with these schools. Some of which, uh, not good things have happened. He arrives at one school just after it's been knocked down to get ready to be cleared for a project. But it also tells the stories of the people behind them, and uh, uh, mostly black families that. Um, that sent their children there, that, uh, that sent, uh, that staffed them with teachers and, uh, that, uh, uh, uh that really, uh, whose lives were changed as a result of them. There were 5,000 of these schools in the, uh, across the South. Wow. Between in the 19, from the 1920s to the 1950s.
2: Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Well, thanks to Andrew Feiler, at least they're, they're documented somewhere. That's great. Exactly. And
0: it's, a. um, uh, if you can't uh, can't get a hold of the book, uh, check out the uh, the exhibit, and you'll you'll enjoy checking these out.
2: All right. Well, let's hear uh, from uh, Andrew Feiler himself. Thanks, Bo. Thank you very much, Shane.
0: Uh, Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington forged one of the earliest collaborations between Jews and African-Americans to create schools throughout the nation for Black children who had no access to publicly funded education. Eventually, together, they built almost 5,000 schools for African-American children. Um, um, Of those, about 500 still exist. That time, of building those schools was was from 1912 to 1937. A few years ago, Andrew Filer uh, became fascinated with these schools and he drove more than 25,000 miles to record about a hundred of the existing ones. Uh, Andrew Filer is with us here today to talk about his uh, book of photographs and stories behind those schools and also about the exhibition of those photographs that is currently on display at the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be with you. So, uh, you uh, told me that at, as you were growing up, uh, this uh, this whole story uh, had never been mentioned to you, even though uh, you're a Jew. You grew up in the South, and uh, and this is the kind of thing that your
1: parents would would certainly have been fascinated by. How did that happen? So I have, um, I've been a serious photographer most of my life. About 10 years ago, I started down this path of taking my work more seriously and mercifully being taken more seriously. And I had turned in my, what became my first photography book, I had turned it into my publisher, University of Georgia Press in late 2014. And I was thinking about what I was going to do next. In February of 2015, I found myself at lunch with Jeannie Syriac who had originated the role of African-American heritage specialist at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office. And she's the first person who told me about Rosenwald schools. And the story shocked me because, as you said, I am a fifth generation Jewish Georgian. Uh, I grew up in Savannah. Uh, I have been a progressive activist my entire life. And the pillars of this story, Southern Jewish progressive activists are the pillars of my life. How could I have never heard of this story? Exactly so I came home and I Googled at Rosenwald schools. And what I found was that there were several books on the topic, but there was not a comprehensive photographic account of this, of this program. And, and as, as I said, I've been a progressive activist my whole life. My voice as a photographer is my civic voice. And so this story, this early collaboration between Jews and African-Americans and the cause of what later becomes known as civil rights. Uh, fits so um, soundly within the space that I operate in um, as, a, as a sort of civic person that I, be- I kind of became obsessed with this story and decided that I was going to go in pursuit of, this, uh, of a photographic telling of the story. And
0: uh, as a result, you ended up driving, what, 25,000 miles to
1: states all across uh, the Southeast so the pro, this program uh, begins in 1912. Um, this collaboration between Julius Rosenwald, who is this, so uh, Julius Rosenwald, let me, let me just take a step back and sort of introduce the characters, if you will. Julius Rosenwald is born to Jewish immigrants in Springfield, Illinois, parents who had fled religious persecution in Germany. Uh, and he rises, he grows up, by the way, across the street from Abraham Lincoln's home While Lincoln is resident in Springfield, and in fact, if you go to downtown, if you go to Springfield today, there's a four square block Lincoln Home National Historic Site, and across the street from Lincoln's home is Julius Rosenwald's uh, childhood home. It is actually the offices of the superintendent of the National Historic Site. Um, Rosenwald rises to become the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. He turns Sears into the world's largest retailer as he leads this company from 1908 until his death in 1932. Booker T. Washington is born into slavery uh, and becomes an educator and is the founding principal of the uh, historically Black college in Alabama known as Tuskegee Institute. And the two men meet in 1911. You have to remember, 1911 is before the Great Migration, which doesn't begin until later that decade. So 90% of African Americans live in the South. And public schools for African Americans are mostly shacks with a fraction of the funding afforded to white schools for white children. Um, and so uh, the two of them create, create this idea. And in 1912, they released, they announced this program. They reach out to the black communities of the South. And they say, if you will contribute to a school because we want you to be a full partner in your progress. And we will count as your contribution, cash, land, materials, and labor. And if you will reach out to the school board, the white school board, because we want to deliberately establish black-white dialogue as a foundation for future progress, and these have to be public schools. So the white school board, while we welcome their contribution, they have to at a minimum agree to own, maintain, and staff the school, pay for the teachers. Do that, and Julius Rosenwald will make a substantial contribution towards school construction. And from 1912 to 1937, they built 4,978 schools across 15 Southern and border states. And it's, it's a transformative moment in American history. And as you said, um, about 500 of these schools survive. In over three and a half years, I drove 25,000 miles across all 15 of the program states and shot 105 of the surviving schools.
0: Now, do you remember what, uh, when you saw your first one and what did it look like and uh, what did it sort of tell you?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. So it turns out that the very first school that I went to um, is I think one of the most compelling schools. It's the Noble Hill School in North Georgia. I, Jeannie Syriac and I, Jeannie, took me out and introduced me to some of the earliest schools. And we would do these shoots around Georgia as kind of my test shoots. And we went up to the Noble Hill School in Bartow County, which is about an hour north of Atlanta, up I-75. And the Noble Hill School has this incredible story associated with it. There's a photograph on the wall of Webster Wheeler. And Webster Wheeler uh, grew up in Castle, Georgia, and left as part of the Great Migration. And he goes to, to Detroit, and he has an entire career as a carpenter for the Ford Motor Company. And in 1923, he hears that his small town of Cassville has gotten this Rosenwald grant, and he moves back to Cassville. And along with one community member, they build this school. Now, that was probably a uh, counter to what
0: everyone else was doing at the time. He came back to the South, uh, leaving what was for sure a prosperous um, uh, p- uh, potential for himself.
1: And how old would he have been at the time? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think, why did he come back? One of the things that I find time and again in the, in the narratives of the people that I met throughout, because I met former students, former teachers, and, and all, time and again, what I see is this narrative students becoming educators, becoming the keepers of preservation and memory and history in their communities. And what it speaks to is the power of education as the path forward for African-Americans and also for the path forward for all Americans, education. And how important these schools were in science. Yes, totally. So Webster Wheeler comes back and he builds a school. And today, it is a community center and uh, and, and small museum to the the heritage of African-Americans in North Georgia. And it was turned into that heritage center by one of Webster Wheeler's descendants. His great granddaughter, uh, Marion Coleman, was the curator of the center for 20 years. And now his great great granddaughter, uh, Valerie Coleman, is the curator of this center. And the, 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 I, I want to just add one more thing, because this is the power of these stories. This, is, this, body, of, this, this body of work, this, my book, this exhibition, is photographs, but I found such incredible stories that I told us I ended up writing a story that goes with each photograph in the book and with each photograph in the exhibition. And this one, I focus on the fact that there is this photograph of him on the wall. Because in Isabel Wilkerson's treatise, uh, the Warmth of Other Suns, her, her Pulitzer Prize winning book on the Great Migration, she tells this amazing story that when migrants left the South and they arrived in their new cities, sometimes in the North, sometimes in the Midwest, sometimes in the West, they would have their portrait taken as a testament that they to the fact that they have arrived in the, this promised new land. And so this portrait of Webster Wheeler, is not a, is a is a is a token of the of of great migration history in America, and it hangs on the wall of this schoolhouse.
0: Well, and he not only migrated, he came back again. That does that mean that he stayed in Cassville, or did he go back to and and was it Chicago or where had where
1: had he was in he, was in he was in Detroit. Uh huh and and he he came back to the community and he built the school and remained in the community
0: and stayed that's that's pretty great now uh the as you mentioned uh your photographs uh
1: which there are uh how many photographs in your book so there's 85 photographs in the book um each comes with a story that highlights some dimension of either the history of the rosenwald school program or the connectivity of the rosenwald school program to the sweep of of american history Uh, and and those
0: stories that wasn't your intention to begin
1: with, but you couldn't stop because
0: people kept telling you stories. Yeah,
1: that that's exactly right, and and I'll and I'll give you one one really incredible incredible example. There's a photograph, uh, in the take that is inside the Cairo School in Sumner County, Tennessee. It is a small white clapboard building. It is a one teacher school, and inside the school, above the doorway, hangs a photograph of Julius Rosenwald that has hung on this above this doorway since the schoolhouse opened in 1923. And below them under his watchful gaze are two African-American men in in their late 70s. This is Frank and Charles Brinkley. They are brothers and they both attended this school. Both brothers went to college. Both brothers went to graduate school. Both brothers became educators. They have four sisters, all of whom went through this school all of whom went to college, and the six siblings together have 10 children, all 10 children went to college. And that the legacy and sweep of that changing dynamic for that family may never have happened without without this school. And so how you do you start
0: know? with, you start with this one little one room, one teacher, white clabbered school, and like that mustard seed, all of this
1: grows out of that. Uh, yes, and in fact, um, what, you, what you find in this program is the program begins with these smaller schoolhouses, one-teacher schools, two-teacher schools, three-teacher schools, all these small white clapboard structures, and by the end of the program, they're building one, two, and three-story red brick buildings. And so there is um, the, there's the evolution of the program. There's also the evolution of how American history changes and adjusts during the sweep of this program.
2: In
0: fact, I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about uh, the those schools were built between uh, 1912 and 1937. Is that right? That's correct. And but they they continued even long after Brown versus the Board of Education had decided that uh, uh, that separate but equal was no longer
1: the the law of the land. Yes. Yeah, so in my uh, in the structure of my I've actually built into the some of this history into how I title my images. Each of the schoolhouses, each of the photographs of schoolhouses, my title is first the name of the school, because these names are so iconic, the Dunn's Chapel Rosenwald School, that's the Rosenwald School, for example, that John Lewis went to. Um, Shady Grove, Shiloh, these reflect people, uh, people in the uh, places in the community, churches in the community. So I have the title of the school, I have the county and the state, because the uh, public funding uh, that was the component, component of this but went through the county school boards. And then I have the opening date, but I also have the closing date because of exactly the question that you're asking. Many of these schools closed in um, around the time of the, Brown, of the uh, Supreme Court desegregation wow. orders of 1954 and 1955. But the response to Brown varied wow. widely, not just by state, but by individual school district. And many of these schools are active schools into the, into the late 1960s, and some are actually active into the early 1970s.
0: Like 20 years after uh, the Supreme Court decision. Correct. Um, which uh, shows a couple of things. It shows uh, white resistance to integration, but it also shows the durability of that, um, uh, that educational architecture that was created, so many years earlier.
1: Well, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really good and a very important point. And, and let me, you and know, and this is another example of why I had to t- write stories with each of these things. So the origin, the beginning of the program. I have I have a photograph of the in this in this pro, in this book and in the exhibition of the Emory School in Hale County, Alabama which is uh, built around 1915. is likely the oldest surviving Rosenwald School. And it it illustrates the architecture of this uh, that is defined very early in the program. There's an architect named Robert Robinson Taylor. Robert Robinson Taylor is the first African-American to attend MIT. He is the first accredited African-American architect. And he is hired by Booker T. Washington to be the chief architect at Tuskegee. Many of the beautiful buildings on that campus were designed by Robert Robinson Taylor, and he and Robert Robinson Taylor's great granddaughter is Valerie Jarrett, who was one of the senior aides to President Obama during his entire tenure in the White House. Uh, And I bring Robert Robinson Taylor's story into this book with a portrait of uh, Valerie Jarrett holding up a sheet of stamps, which honored Robert Robinson Taylor in nineteen and excuse me, two thousand and fifteen. So Robert Robinson Taylor and his team lay out these design principles: large windows to let in lots of light because these schoolhouses originally did not have electricity. Um, uh, Cloak rooms so the dirty outer garments could be set, kept in separate places and not dirty the um, the uh, education spaces. And also, this is this one schoolhouse uh, had two teaching spaces that were separated by a series of folding doors that could be pulled back to open up the entire space so it could serve as a community center outside of education hours. And these basic design principles, this is progressive era architecture, architecture and service to education. Those principles that are laid out in 1912 by Robert Robinson Taylor become the design principles that exist through the entire history of the program. And uh the
0: the, uh, the schools themselves uh, some were uh, some were durable, some were uh, uh, you know uh, prey to the same uh, uh, forces that destroy so many historic structures all over the place. Um, the, uh, there's a certain amount of effort being made in a variety of places to uh, to preserve uh, these uh, these schools, including, uh, the one that you mentioned in Cassville, and
1: and are there some others as well in in Georgia? Yes. Yeah, so um, there in in um, there were originally four thousand nine hundred and seventy eight schools, as you mentioned earlier. Only about five hundred survive, and only about half of those have been restored. Mm-hmm. And I have, um, and and there, these schools were largely smaller structures, so they have outgrown their use as educational spaces. And in fact, of the 105 schools I went to, only five are still in use for educational purposes. Uh, So they've had to to restore them and preserve them. They have to have been adaptively reused. But there is an important narrative thread within this work, which is the plea for preservation, because I show schools that have been preserved, that have been adaptively reused into community centers and church halls, but I also show schools that are at risk of collapse, and in fact, there are several schools that I arrived at that had collapsed so recently that one was surrounded by yellow caution tape, and another by emergency fencing with keep out signs. And uh, and so part of this of the uh, the narrative thread of this work is to highlight how important these spaces are as these centers of history and memory and how it's really important to preserve them. And fortunately in a number of communities, there's, there's sort of a rising awareness of this program. And many communities are coming together that, that these communities that have unrestored schools and making an effort to restore, to restore them and turn them into uh, uses that where they can be enlivened by the community. What did it
0: feel like when you arrived just a little bit too late and you found one that had fallen down onto the ground?
1: You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's shocking and depressing and sad. And yet, if that, uh, and I will tell you, there's, there's, uh, there's a photograph of the W. E. in this book, the W.E.B. Du Bois School in Wake Forest, um, uh, North Carolina. And I arrived uh, fully expecting to see the school there. I only later found out that it had literally been demolished one week before I got there. And it is this pile of rubble and standing in the midst of this rubble. Is a Coke machine. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can't make this stuff up, right? Uh, and, and yet, you know, I, I I photographed that because I knew that that is an important and emotional message. You know, this is this is this is a Coke machine in the South, standing sentinel as a reminder that uh, this is what happens when we don't undertake these efforts in time. Now, I wanted to uh, point out, you, you, uh, you
0: mentioned uh, about that you were shocked to find out about this, this whole history. Um, and one of the things that you told me earlier was that uh, the, the, one of the reasons Julius Rosenwald isn't um, as uh, uh, his name isn't on everything was for a couple of things. One was that he uh, made a point of saying that the entire fund was to be expended. Uh, in, in, a, in a prescribed amount of time. So the, the, uh, that was so that, and you, you tell me the, the way that you put it there, but that was so that the um, uh, in- instigators, the people uh, who created this were going to benefit from, uh, from that,
1: from those efforts. Yeah. So Julius Rosenwald is, one, is, 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 is really one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And think about how innovative he's, what he was. The African-American community has to contribute to a school. This is a challenge grant, an early example of challenge grant. The white school board has to agree to participate. This is one of the earliest examples of public-private partnership. And it has become very fashionable in philanthropy today to sunset your foundation. Uh, Warren Buffett has said that. Bill Gates has said that in, in Atlanta, uh, Bernie Marcus has said that Julius Rosenwald is one of the earliest philanthropists to introduce this idea of a, of a foundation that sunsets because Julius Rosenwald believed that the generation that helped create the wealth should be the beneficiaries of that wealth. So the customers of Sears that helped create um, his, his his success, financial success should benefit from his philanthropic endeavors. And so he mandated that all funds in the Rosenwald Fund should be expended within 25 years of his death. And in fact, he dies in 1932 and the funds are actually expended within 15 years and the fund shuts down in 1948. And one of the reasons we don't know Rosenwald as well today as, as much as some of his philanthropic peers like Carnegie and Rockefeller and Ford is because um, his foundation sunset. He was also a very modest man. He did not call these schools Rosenwald schools. they become known as Rosenwald schools. He, in Chicago, he is the biggest, he, is the, he put up the money that created the Museum of Science and Industry. They wanted to call it the Rosenwald Museum. He refused. Uh, and so uh, that's another reason why the story remains hidden in history. And yet the scope and sweep of this story is enormously important. And you pointed out that the people that uh,
0: that generated this money, the, the customers of Sears Roebuck. Uh, well, a lot of those customers were African-Americans, uh, the uh, uh, the. Uh, but, of course, the, the customers of Sears Roebuck, this is probably not recognized today, but this was a an institution of American uh, culture. People uh, lived in. Uh, in Sears Roebuck houses that, that they bought by mail order. Uh, people uh, lived on that, uh, sat on furniture from Sears Roebuck and used tools from Sears. It was a huge uh, uh, part of American life at one point. And, and back then, I can't, I, I can't exactly guess how much, but uh, uh, enough to where you wouldn't have to explain what Sears Roebuck was back
1: then. Absolutely, and in fact, it's particularly important in the South Sears is particularly important to the South for African-Americans, right? They could order things through the mail without having to suffer the indignities that they experienced. when they went to white shops and were not, we had to and had to wait behind the white customers or were not allowed to try on clothing. And in fact, uh, I, one of the schools that I visited is the Bay spring school outside of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where, um, the widow of, L, of Vernon Damer Sr., who was a, uh, the head of the NAACP in Hattiesburg and is later murdered for his activism. I met with his, his widow, uh, Ellie Damer. have a portrait of her in the book. She is a former Rosenwald student, a former Rose, teacher in this Rosenwald school that we were meeting in. And her son, uh, Dennis, who had recently restored the school tells me the story about how, when he was growing up, the rumor was that the white the white merchants merchants in town would spread the rumor that Sears was Jewish and Roebuck was black, so that people would uh, not shop at, at would not shop at Sears Roebuck and that they would instead shop at the at these white establishments in town.
0: Well, uh, apparently it didn't work. No.
1: <laughs> so uh, to uh,
0: to let folks know who are listening to this podcast, uh, your photographs. Uh, A healthy selection of them are on display uh, right now at the Center for Civil and Human Rights, and that uh, that exhibit is going to be there
1: for uh, a prescribed amount of time you'll tell me how long. It's up through uh, the exhibition just opened, and it will be up through December twelfth. And then it's going to take a tour
0: and and I don't know whether you know already how uh, where it where it will go
1: next. It, um, it will, um, um, after it leaves Atlanta, we'll be going to uh, Charlotte, the Charlotte Museum of History. Then it will go to Memphis, the National Civil Rights Museum in, at the Lorraine Motel. It then travels to Nashville, to the Tennessee State Museum, to New Orleans, to the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience, which coincidentally is opening today, the day that we're, we're uh, recording this. Uh, then we'll go to Richmond, to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and then it will travel beyond that. This is, uh, it's gonna travel for quite a while. Now, are
0: you going with it in all these places? Of course. So you're going to put some more miles on that
1: same car, right? I, I will. And uh, about that time, you know, I started shooting this work when the exhibition of my uh, the work of my prior book was traveling. And one of the, I got started shooting this work, like my, the work from my previous book would, for example, open at the, was, it was on display at the International Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is in the old Woolworths, where the lunch counter sit-in movement begins February 1st, 1960, and I would research Rosenwald schools and I would uh, spend hours on the internet finding these uh, surviving structures, and I would line them up by GPS coordinate, and I would shoot, I would load up my exhibition in the back of my wife's SUV, and I would drive the Greensboro on these rural roads, and I would shoot schools all the way up. I'd hang the exhibition, I would shoot schools all the way back. Four months later, I'd go take down the exhibition, do the same thing all over again. So. Uh, By the time this exhibition is traveling beyond Atlanta, I hope to also be in in the search of uh, shooting my next book. And what's that book going to be about? You know, this is something I have been fixating on for quite some time. I kind of have a new, new, new idea about every three days of most of those ideas don't survive 24 hours of scrutiny most of the rest don't survive 72 hours of scrutiny but I do have a particular idea that I'm starting to my my process is to read and shoot and shoot and read and the reading informs the shooting and the shooting informs the reading and I'm I'm kicking around a particular idea and I intend to start doing some reading research over the summer and uh, see if that becomes the the project that uh, I move forward with I hope to be all right
0: we won't give away that topic right now, so nobody uh, beats you to the punch. But uh, uh, but I appreciate uh, Andrew Fowler. You taking time to talk to us, and uh, uh, I I very much appreciate the, those wonderful black and white images, uh, and uh, I and the chance to see them in that in that large format uh, reproduction there at the Center for Soil and Human Rights. And uh, the book uh, that, uh, that collects all those pictures together, tell the proper name for that volume.
1: So the, the book is titled, uh, A Better Life for Their Children, Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 schools that changed America. And where can folks find that? Uh, that book, uh, of course, I'm a strong supporter of independent bookstores. It can be purchased at Acapella Books. Uh, You can find it on Amazon, or folks can also buy personalized and signed copies on my website, which is andrewfiler.com. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much, sir. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. A pleasure to be
0: with you, too. You take care.
1: Thank you.
2: The Newport Jazz Festival, one of the most iconic jazz festivals in America, has arguably been a focal point of Rhode Island summer since the 1950s, But as with most performing arts, COVID-19 put a halt to the event in 2020. On the same weekend the festival returns with some of the biggest names in jazz, a new event in the tradition of the Newport Festival could shift the focus in Roswell to jazz on a summer's day. For the maiden Boku Jazz and Blues Festival and Pop-Up Art Village on July 31st at the East Village Center, The Roswell Arts Fund is bringing the Brubeck Brothers Quartet, led by the sons of the late Dave Brubeck, who was a Newport staple, to headline a day of music. Find out more about the festival on AJC.com. Some like it hot, but when it's time to cool off, Metro Atlanta locales and a few spots further down the road offer a variety of options. Spend time with family and friends catching waves at water park rides or lounging for beachy vibes. Spend a daycation at a hotel with a swanky outdoor pool aptly called the Wet Deck. There's a rotation of climate-controlled activities with social media-worthy skyline views of Atlanta. Head to AJC.com to check out our list of a few places that can help you beat the heat while taking a break to chill. It was 2013. Atlanta actress Crystal Fox. 18 years removed from her regular role on CBS's Carol O'Connor Police Procedural in The Heat of the Night, had already figured her days of TV and film were largely behind her. She had spent the previous decade focused on stage work, starring in musicals and plays around the country and locally at the Alliance Theater. Her only TV credit between 2001 and 2013 was a small recurring role on Tyler Perry's House of Pain. Then she landed the role on Perry's first own drama, The Haves and the Have-Nots, as Hannah Young. The series concluded recently after eight seasons, and the AJC's Rodney Ho spoke with Fox about the show and her career. Find the interview on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. It's been 30 years since Usher Raymond IV first competed as a 13-year-old on Star Search. Now he gets to headline on his dream stage and bring the ATL along for the ride. It's an exciting 90-minute musical celebration that Usher, who now wears an inclining, asymmetric haircut, takes great pride in. This superstar kicked off his residency at the Coliseum at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas on July 16th. The show will continue through the rest of 2021. Read our interview with the R&B superstar on AJC.com and find out how he's bringing Atlanta to the Vegas Strip. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.